Hello there, my sweet summer children. Welcome back to my little unnamed podcast you listen to while you sew or knit or walk the dog or change your oil or turn wood legs on your lathe. I'm your host, Bethany. We're going to be talking about life in the theater world in today's episode on rehearsal, homes, and radio drama. This comes at the intersection of few things, as is common with me. The impetus for this project in particular came from work in my master's program. As part of my coursework, I had to record a radio drama, and this is about the same time that I was seriously considering podcasting as a creative outlet. So whatever I decided to do, I knew I wanted to be able to use it after class was over, and so that turned me to scripts and books in the public domain. Public Domain works are the lifeblood of small and regional theaters because they don't cost any money to do beyond normal production costs, like costuming, set building, that kind of thing. It's one of the reasons I think Shakespeare is so popular, because it doesn't have any licensing fees or royalties. To give you a reference, a straight play, meaning a play that doesn't, it's not a musical, could cost anywhere from $75 a show to $250 a show in royalty fees, depending on its age and popularity. Considering most small community and regional shows run at least two and as many as six weekends, and then in that weekend they do at least three, but maybe as many as five or six shows in that weekend. That means just to use a script, it could cost a theater somewhere between $450 and $7,500 before whatever expenses go toward building the set, building costumes, buying or making props actor and crew pay, and about a dozen other things that a theater company might have to pay for up front, all with the hope of breaking even with ticket sales. It's a lot. In the public domain, the cost is just the time it takes to adapt the novel or book into use for the stage. The Gutenberg Project has a massive trove of works in the public domain that are available completely online. Generally, anything over 100 years falls into this category of public domain and can be freely used without issue or copyright infringement. One note of caution for you eager theater adapters out there. A particular work might be in the public domain, but a specific edition or translation may still be under copyright, so double-check your source text before you just go producing work all willy-nilly. I love mysteries. It's kind of a late love for me. Partial credit goes to that BBC's list of 100 books they think Americans haven't read. And that started me on the home stories. And the other piece of the credit goes to Doctor Who's fourth series episode, The Unicorn and the Wasp. In The Unicorn and the Wasp, the Doctor and Donna spend time with Agatha Christie. Suffice it to say, I think Doyle and Christie are the godparents of the mystery and crime novel. Because once you've read a sufficient amount of both of those novels, you'll pretty much be able to solve every CSI episode in the first 15 minutes. So I knew I wanted to do a mystery, and I ended up settling in the Holmes universe. The Adventure of the Speckled Band is reportedly one of Arthur Conan Doyle's favorite Sherlock Holmes stories that he ever wrote. I figured that would be a great place to start. So I got the script online, I made some edits, I emailed a few friends, and here we are. The original story was about 10,000 words to start, which is a good length to get a 40-minute script out of, which is ideal for classroom use. So anytime you're adapting for classroom use, a good rule of thumb is that actors can speak 
about 135 words per minute. So you take 135 words times the number of minutes you want, and that gives you a good benchmark for when you're cutting and editing and adapting to get a script of the length that you're looking for. 40 minutes was the time for me, and that's the script that I got to. My merry band of friends and I recorded this section of the script three times. There are three characters that appear at this point in the story, which is Holmes, Watson, and their client, Helen. Each of our actors got to play each role, and then out of those three recordings, I selected the best take to convert over into a radio drama, meaning I added music and sound effects and footsteps and wild zoo animals. I mean, the story is very exciting, which you'll get to hear if you tune in next time. The take you were about to listen to is the B take, but it's still pretty awesome. And in some ways, it's just as good as the take that I selected as our finished product. What's great about this take? It's pretty adventurous. The actors made some really bold choices, which were fun to listen to. And I think a lot of what makes a memorable performance is all of this work that you do trying things out before you settle on the one way to perform it that works. I do want to prepare you before we get into it. What you're about to hear is pretty close to what an in-person rehearsal is like. There are starts and stops. There's joking, there's giggling, there's swearing, and there's some really good work going on. For those of you on the outside of the curtain, so to speak, it is really difficult to overstate the impact of the tone of a show and the overall expression of characters and how closely that's tied to a particular actor's interpretation of those characters. No two actors are going to interpret a character exactly the same way, even when given the same given circumstances. So you take that and you add on top of that an actor's willingness to play and experiment with different tactics that's the theater word for how characters try to get what they want. All of those choices push the other actors in the scene into making new choices, and then everyone's making new choices, and it's pretty much like a line of dominoes. That's the work that happens in the rehearsal room. Not so much actors switching parts, that's what the audition process is for, but there's a lot of work that happens before you buy that ticket and you come to the theater and you sit down, the lights go up, and the actors take the stage. This is the way I'm choosing to honor all of that work. In today's show, in today's experiment, our B-take, you're going to hear the voices of Emily, Keegan, and Chris. These are my fantastic actor friends, and I'm sitting in the director's chair. So we're going to come up in the space between takes, and I did not warn them in advance that I would be asking them to switch parts. So we're going to come up in the middle of me assigning new parts to the actors, and then we're going to hear a part of the script, and I hope you enjoy. Okay? I would like Here we go. Chris to do Wat uh, Watson. I would like Keegan to do Helen, okay. and I would like Emily to do Holmes. <laughs> yes! Fuck you, bitch. Have fun reading all that shit. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, I would volunteer to do Helen just to have fun with all those lines and see how much they get correct or not. But uh, you can have fun look, with it. We'll, I, we'll see how Helen I can sound. You may. Oh, look, uh, 
Because in my thing, it's like, look, you can be any gender you want to be. Hell yeah. We play this. So, like, equality, yay. Yay. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. Ready. So, uh, and understanding that these are new lines, so they may be cold. So feel free to go a tad slower, right, and play up the drama. Because okay. when you're acting for Jesus, as they say in the Midwest, uh, you can take it. Does anybody else know that? That am I the only I just one know that term? No, I just know teasing to G's, tease to G's. When you're teasing your hair for a show, you got tease to G's. Okay, yeah, that's the same. Okay. That's the same thing. It's just like Keegan way... no, doesn't have any hair. <laughs> but I've got plenty of Jesus. So. Jeez. <laughs> 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 Oh, Keegan, I miss seeing you. That's in really funny. Right. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> All right. So we're going to do it again. Um, let's call that silliness. Mm-hmm. Let's call that silliness level five. Okay. Let's see a silliness level eight. Plus three. Plus three to Plus your three silliness. silliness. Got yes. It. That's your that's your base mod. All right, uh, we are going to start from the beginning and stop at that same place, uh, and we'll just see how it goes. Do it again, Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Speckled Band. Watson, uh, Holmes. Very sorry to knock you up so early, but it's common lot this morning. Mrs. Hudson has been knocked up. She retorted upon me, and I on you. What is it then, a fire? No, a client. It seems that a young lady has arrived in a considerable state of excitement who sits, uh, sit, insists, ah, no, a client. It seems that a young lady has arrived in a considerable state of excitement who insists upon seeing me. She is waiting now in the sitting room. Now, when young ladies wander about the metropolis at this hour of the morning and knock sleepy people out of their beds, I presume that it is something very pressing which they have to communicate. Should it prove to be an interesting case, you would, I am sure, wish to follow it from the outset. I thought at any rate I should call you and give you the chance. My dear fellow, I would not miss it for anything. I'll I'll just dress and, and meet you in the drawing room presently. Do hurry, a lady in a veil first thing in the morning promises to be of interest. Good morning, madam. Thank you for waiting. My name is Sherlock Holmes. This is my intimate friend and associate, Dr. Watson, before whom you can speak as freely as before me. Ha! I am glad to see that Mrs. Hudson has had the good sense to light the fire. Pray drop to it. I shall order a cup of hot coffee, for I observe that you are shivering. It is not with cold which makes me shiver. What then? It is fear, Mr. Holmes. It is terror. You must not fear. You shall soon set matters. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm loving this voice. It's like a weird, like, riffraff from Rocky Horror. (laughs) I wasn't ready. I'm sorry. Just, and then I saw Bethany laugh in the corner of my screen. <laughs> it's delicious. It's deliciously weird. I'm going to have to mute my microphone. Can I go back to good morning, madam? Yes. <laughs> it's, a nice, it's a nice little segue. 
Good morning, madam. Thank you for waiting. My name is Sherlock Holmes. This is my intimate friend and associate, Dr. Watson, before whom you can speak as freely as before myself. Ha! I am glad to see that Mrs. Hudson has had the good sense to light the fire. Pray draw up to it and I shall order you a cup of hot coffee for I observe that you are shivering. It is not cold which makes me shiver. What then? It is fear, Mr. Holmes. It is terror. Oh, you must not fear. We shall soon set matters right. I have no doubt. You have come by, in by train this morning, I see. How could you know such a thing? Oh, I observe the second half of a return ticket in the palm of your left glove. You must have started early, and yet you have a good drive in a dog cart along heavy roads before you reach the station. My goodness, how did you know? Oh, there is no mystery, dear madam. The left arm of your jacket is spattered with mud in no less than seven places. The marks are perfectly fresh. There is no vehicle save a dog cart which throws up mud in that way, and then only when you sit on the left-hand side of the driver. Whatever your reasons may be, you are perfectly correct. I started from home before six, reached Leatherhead at twenty past, and came in by the first train to Waterloo. Sir, I can stand this rain no longer. I shall go mad if it continues. I have no one to turn to. None, save only you. Oh, well, only one. None, save only one. Who cares for me? And he, poor fellow, can be of little aid. I have heard of you, Mr. Holmes. I have heard of you from Miss Farintush, whom you helped in the hour of her sword need. It was her... It was, <laughs> It was from her that I had your address. Oh, sir, do you not think you could help me too? Oh, and, 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 and at least throw a little light through the dense darkness which surrounds me? At present it is out of my power to regard you, to reward you for your services. But in a month or six weeks, I shall be married with the control of mine own income, and then at least you shall not find me ungrateful. Farintosh. Ah, yes, I recall the case. It was concerned with an opal tiara. I think it was before your time, Watson. I can only say, madam, that I shall be happy to devote some care to your case as I did to that of your friend. As to reward, my profession is its own reward, but you are at liberty to defray whatever expenses I may be put to at the time which suits you best. And now, I beg that you will lay before us everything that may help us in forming an opinion upon the matter. Alas, the very horror of my situation lies in the fact that my fears are so vague and my suspicions depend so entirely upon small points which might seem trivial to another that even he to whom all, that even he to whom of all others I have a right to look for help and advice looks upon all that I tell him about it as the fancies of a nervous woman. He does not say so, but I can read it from his soothing answers and averted eyes. But I have heard, Mr. Holmes, that you can see deeply into the manifold wickedness of the very human heart. You may advise me how to walk amid the dangers which encompass me. I am all attention, madam. My name is Helen Stoner. And I am living with my stepfather, who is the last survivor of one of the oldest Saxon families in England, the Roylots of Stoke Moran. 
on the western border of Surrey? That name is familiar to me. The family was at one time among the richest in England, and the estates extended over the borders into Berkshire in the north and Hampshire in the west. In the last century, however, four successive heirs were of a dissolute and wasteful disposition, and the family ruin was eventually completed by a gambler in the days of the Regency. Nothing was left save a few acres of ground and the 200-year-old house, which itself is crushed under a heavy mortgage. The last squire dragged out his existence there, living the horrible life of an aristocratic pauper. But his only son, my stepfather, seeing that he must adapt himself to the new conditions, obtained an advance from a relative, which enabled him to make a, which enabled him to take a medical degree, and went out to Calcutta, where by his professional skill and his force of character, he established a large practice. In a fit of anger, however, caused by some robberies which had been perpetrated in the house, he beat his native butler to death and narrowly escaped a capital sentence. As it was, he suffered a long term of imprisonment and afterwards returned to England a morose and disappointed man. When Dr. Roylott was in India, he married my mother, Mrs. Stoner, the young widow of Major General Stoner of the Bengal Artillery. My sister Julia and I were twins, and we were only two years old at the time of my mother's remarriage. She had a £1,000 a year, and this she bequeathed to Dr. Roylott entirely while we resided with him, with a provision that a certain annual sum should be allowed to each of us in the event of our marriage. Shortly after our return to England, my mother died in a railway accident near Coole. Dr. Roylott then abandoned his attempts to establish himself in practice in London and took us to live with him in the old ancestral house at Stoke Moran. The money which my mother had left was enough for all our wants, and there seemed to be no obstacle to our happiness. But a terrible change came over our stepfather at this time. Instead of making friends and exchanging visits with our neighbors, who at first had been overjoyed to see a Roylott of Stoke Moran back in the old family seat, he shut himself up in his house and seldom came out save to indulge in ferocious quarrels with whoever might cross his path. Violence of temper approaching to mania has been hereditary in the men of the family, and in my stepfather's case it had, I believe, been intensified by his long residence in the tropics. A series of disgraceful brawls took place, two of which ended in the police court, until at last it came until at last he became the terror of the village, and the folks would fly at his approach, for he was a man of immense strength and absolutely uncontrollable in his anger. He has no friends at all, save a wandering troop of performers, musicians and such, and he would give these vagabonds leave to encamp upon the few acres of bramble-covered land which represent the family estate, and would accept in return the hospitality of their tents, wandering away with them sometimes for weeks on end. He has a passion for Indian animals, which are sent over to him by a correspondent. And he has at this moment a cheetah and a baboon, which wander freely over his grounds and are feared by the villagers almost as much as their master. You can imagine from what I say that my poor sister Julia and I had no great pleasure in our lives. No servant would stay with us. And for a long time, we all did the work of the house. She was but 30 at the time of her death and yet her hair had already begun to whiten. 
even as mine has. Your sister's dead then? She died just two years ago. And it is of her death that I wish to speak to you. You can understand that living the life which I have described, we were very likely to see, we were little likely to see anyone of our own age and position. We had an aunt, Miss Honoria Westfall, Miss Honoria Westphal, Miss Miss On, Miss On, Miss On, Miss Off, Miss Honoria Westphal, who lives near Harrow, and we were occasionally allowed to play. And we were occasionally had to pay short visits at this lady's house. Julia went there at Christmas two years ago and met there a half-pay major of Marines to whom she became engaged. My stepfather learned of the engagement when my sister returned and offered no objection to the marriage. But within a fortnight of the day which had been fixed for the wedding, the terrible event occurred which has deprived me of my only companion. Pray be precise as you are able in regards to the details. It is easy for me to be so, for every event of that dreadful time is seared into my memory. The manor house is, as I have already said, very old, and the only wing is now inhabited. The bedrooms in this wing are on the ground floor, the sitting rooms being in the central block of the buildings. Of these bedrooms, the first, is Dr. Roylotz, the second, my sister's, and the third, my own. There is no communication between them, but they all open out into the same corridor. Do I make myself plain? Perfectly so. The windows of the three rooms open out upon the lawn. That fatal night, Dr. Roylotz had gone to his room early, though we knew he had not retired to rest, for my sister was troubled by the smell of the strong Indian cigars, which it was his custom to smoke. She left her room, therefore, and came into mine, where she sat for some time, chatting about her approaching wedding. At eleven o'clock, she rose to leave me, but she paused the door and looked back. She asked me if I'd ever heard anyone whistle in the dead of night. I told her I had not. She asked me if I knew I could not possibly whistle in my sleep. I told her as far as I knew I couldn't. I wondered why she had asked. Then she told me, during the last few nights, she had always, about three in the morning, heard a low, clear whistle. She said she was a light sleeper, and it woke her. She did not know where it came from. She thought either from the next room or from out her window. She wanted to ask if I had heard the same. I told her I had not. I am something of a heavy sleeper, you see. After that, she smiled at me and wished me good night. She went to her room, and I heard the lock turn in her door. Indeed. Was it your custom always to lock yourselves in at night? Always. And why? I think that I mentioned to you that the doctor kept a cheetah and a baboon. We had no feeling of security unless our doors were locked. Quite so. Pray proceed with your statement. I could not sleep that night. A vague feeling of impending misfortune impressed me. My sister and I, you will recollect, were twins. And you know how subtle the links which bind two souls were so closely allied. It was a wild night. The wind was howling outside, but the rain was beating and splashing against the windows. Suddenly, amid all the hubbub of the gale, there burst forth the wild scream of a terrified woman. I knew it was my sister's voice. 
I sprang from my bed, wrapped a shawl around me, and rushed into the corridor. As I opened my door, I seemed to hear a low whistle, such as my sister described, and a few minutes later a clanging sound, as if a mass of metal had fallen. As I ran down the passage, my sister's door was unlocked and revolved slowly upon its hinges. I stared at it, horror-stricken, not knowing what was about to issue from it. By the light of the corridor lamp, I saw my sister appear at the opening, her face blanched with terror, her hands groping for help, her whole figure swaying to and fro like that of a drunkard. I ran to her and threw my arms around her, but at that moment her knees seemed to give way and she fell to the ground. She arrived as one who was in terrible pain, and her limbs were dreadfully convulsed. At first, I thought she had not recognized me, but as I bent over her, she suddenly shrieked out in a voice which I shall not forget, Oh my God, Helen, it was the band, the speckled band. There was something else which she would have said, and she stared with her finger into the air in the direction of the doctor's room, but a fresh convulsion seized her and choked her words. I rushed out calling loudly for my stepfather, and I met him hastening from his room in his dressing gown. When he reached my sister's side, she was unconscious, and though he poured brandy down her throat and sent for medical aid from the village, all efforts were in vain, for she slowly sank and died without having recovered her consciousness. Such was the dreadful end of my beloved sister. One moment. Are you sure about this whistle and metallic sound? Could you swear to it? That was what the county coroner asked me at the inquiry. It is my strong impression that I heard it, and yet among the crash of the gale and the creaking of an old house, I may possibly have been deceived. Was your sister dressed? No. She was in her nightdress. In her right hand was found the charred stump of a match, and in her left, a matchbox showing that she had struck a light and looked about her when the alarm took place. That is important. And what conclusions did the coroner come to? He investigated the case with great care, for Dr. Roylet's conduct had been notorious in the county, but he was unable to find any satisfactory cause of death. My evidence showed that the door had been fastened upon the inner side, and the windows were blocked by an old-fashioned and the windows were blocked by old-fashioned shutters with broad iron bars, which were secured every night. The walls were carefully sounded, and they were shown to be quite solid all round. The flooring was also thoroughly examined, with the same result. The chimney is wide, but is barred up by four large stables. It is certain, therefore, that my sister was quite alone when she met her end. Besides, there were no marks of any violence upon her. What about, what about poison? The doctors examined her for it, but without success. What do you think that this unfortunate lady died of, then? It is my belief that she died of pure fear and never shock. Though what it was that frightened her, I cannot imagine. Were the musical troupe of which you spoke at the estate at the time? Yes. There are always nearly some there. Ah, and what do you gather from this allusion to a band, a speckled band? Sometimes I have thought that it was merely the wild talk of delirium. Sometimes that it may have referred to some band of people, perhaps to the musical troupe in the estate. 
I do not know whether the spotted handkerchief, which so many of them wear over their heads, might have suggested the strange adjective which she used. These are very deep waters. Mm, pray, go on. Two years have passed since then, and my life has been, until lately, lonelier than ever. A month ago, however, a dear friend whom I have known for many years has done me the honour to ask for my hand in marriage. His name is Percy Armitage, the second son of Mr. Armitage of Cranewater, near Reading. My stepfather has offered no opposition to the match, and we are to be married in the course of the spring. Two days ago, some repairs were started in the west wing of the building, and my bedroom wall has been pierced, so that I have had to move into the chamber in which my sister died, and to sleep in the very bed in which she slept. Imagine, then, my thrill of terror when last night, as I lay awake, thinking over her terrible fate, I suddenly heard in the silence of the night the low whistle which had been the herald of her own death. Oh, I sprang up and lit the lamp, but nothing was to be seen in the room. I was too shaken to go to bed again, however, so I dressed, and as soon as it was daylight, I slipped down, got a dark cart of the crown in, which is opposite, and drove to Leatherhead, from whence I have come this morning, with the one object of seeing you and asking your advice. You have done wisely. Have you told me all? Yes, all. This is very deep business, yet we have not a moment to lose. If we were to come to Stoke Moran today, would it be possible for us to see over these rooms without knowledge of your stepfather? As it happens, he spoke of coming into town today upon some most important business. It is probable that he will be away all day and that there would be nothing to disturb you. Excellent. You are not averse to a trip, Watson. Oh, by no means. Then we shall both come. Uh, what are you going to do yourself? I have one or two things which I would wish to do now that I am in town, but I shall return by the 12 o'clock train so as to be there in time for your coming. Uh, and you may expect us by uh, early afternoon. I have some <clears throat> small business matters to attend to myself. Now, I must go. My heart has lightened already since I have confided my trouble to you. I shall look forward to seeing you again this afternoon. And what do you think of all of it, Watson? It seems to be a most dark and sinister business. Indeed. Yeah, so we're going to do one more time. I want you to do the one you haven't done. Uh, which means Chris is Helen. I think Emily is Watson and Keegan is home. Emily and Keegan are regulars at the Maryland Renaissance Festival. When the world starts back up again, you can see more of their work there. Chris works for a national murder mystery company. He has been dying for a living as long as I've known him. Thanks to the three of them for all their work. As always, thanks to Scientific Uppercut for the tunes. You can hear more of their music anywhere music is digitally available. Want to get in touch with me in my little unnamed podcast? Drop me a note in my email, browngirlcreating at gmail.com, or find me on Instagram. Thank you for listening, and until next time, my dears, be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs>